Morning, everybody. Anybody here ever been spelunking? Spelunking, you know what spelunking is? It's caving. You go down in caves. We're talking about David today. He spent some time in a really dark cave. This is the lowest point of David's life. This is low. It's dark. So welcome to dark days. And um, I went spelunking. First time I went spelunking. Uh, first and only time I went spelunking because of how great the first trip went is. I never did it again. So I, was, I went to Bishop Ireton High School here in Alexandria. And uh, once a semester, so each semester, they allowed us to choose some kind of field trip. And so one of the students said, let's go spelunking. And so the teacher said, sure, it sounds like a great idea. Let's go spelunking. And so we went up to West Virginia and uh, we just kind of parked the cars that we were in on the side of a road somewhere. And I'm thinking, you know, we have an adult with this, right? The adult has fully has this under control and knows what's going on, right? And so we, the 15-year-old who had been to this place before takes us down a trail and says, oh, there it is. There's the cave. Let's go into the cave. And so I'm thinking, of course, the adult knows what's going on. Somebody has, we have a guide. I mean, there's some kind of professional, right? There's something here. What I've come to find out, there's nothing. There's nothing here. There's a cave and we walk in. So we start walking around inside this dark cave and we only have a couple flashlights and they're pretty dim as it is. And we go down this passageway because the kid says, this is the way, right? This is the way to go. So we start going down this narrow passageway and it starts getting smaller and smaller. So first you're walking big and you're hunched over and then you're like really hunched over. And next thing you know, you're on your hands and knees and you're crawling and the passageway that you're in is like this but it's getting smaller and smaller. Now I want you to imagine with me for a second. There's like 25 high school boys. It was an all boys school. And here we are in a single file line because that's how narrow the little tunnel passageway is now, a little narrow. And we're, now we're down on our stomachs and there's about this much room, okay? And we're just inching for it, long straight line. And finally the kid who's leading the whole thing yells up, I'm like third in the line. He yells, it's a dead end. And his flashlight goes out. It's a dead end. Now, now, okay, this like took my breath away as I just thought about it throughout these past weeks, you know, thinking about today, leading up today. Think about it when he said it's a dead end. So when he said it's a dead end, does the, the 25th guy, does he hear that? No. What does he do? He's a high school boy charging forward. So smashing us into this little narrow space. Now we can't breathe. We're being crushed and they're still charging behind you. So there's a brief moment of panic, right? Because now there's no lights and suffocating. And all of a sudden I discovered I'm claustrophobic. So uh, <laughs> the guy at the front who's really getting smashed and has absolutely no room for his body. And he's like, I'm never going to get out of here. I'm going to die. He starts freaking out. He starts screaming. Well, well, then what do I do? Third guy back, man, I start kicking the guy in the head behind back, back, you know, and just, and it seemed like forever, but eventually, you know, you think about that, trying to crawl backwards, you know, like this and just really slow. Is there a way, is there a way out of the mess? I, this is, this is David. He's in a dark cave. Is somebody in charge here? How do we get out of this mess? This is what we want to talk about in this five week series. We're going to talk about today, a very important first step that David makes at the lowest, he's the lowest point of his life. He's down at the Dead Sea. You know, all know the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the face of the earth, right? And we call it dead because there's nothing that's living there. So, I mean, this is bad. This is how he feels. He's at a very low point. What's really so awesome about this experience in David's life, it's during this window of time of his life. He spent almost a decade in the wilderness, right? 
He was prolific with writing songs. We call them psalms, but he was prolific at writing these things. He wrote so many of them. Some people think that he wrote the 23rd, the famous 23rd Psalm, the famous 23rd, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that he wrote it during this time of his life. He probably wrote Psalm 34 and 35, but we know for a fact, because he tells us that he wrote Psalm 57 and 142 during this time of his life. And so we're going to read Psalm 142 this morning. Paul's going to come. Uh, it's going to appear here. He's coming. There it is. First. Okay. Uh, he's going to read the 142nd Psalm. It's on your bulletin. It's definitely in your Bible if you'd like to follow along. It'll be on the screen. But just think about David, the darkest time of his life, very dark time of his life. Here is what he's thinking. Here's what he's feeling. Here's what he's writing. All right, Paul, take it away. All right. Good morning, Grace. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see. There is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Thank you, Paul. Uh, let's just start with a word of prayer. What we're going to talk about, what we're going to bring up, you know, some stuff that we've gone through in our life, deep stuff, heavy stuff. And I believe that God wants to be here this morning to give us a way out, to help us find his way out of the dark days that we're experiencing. So let's just ask God to be with us this morning in a real special way. Lord, um, you know, we're talking about David in the darkest days of his life, and there are all of us in this room that have experienced some darkness to some degree. Some of us here this morning, they're, they're, we've gone through some really dark times, and we're looking to you, Father, for help. David writes, rescue me, help me, save me, set me free from this prison. Now, I can identify with that different times in my life. Needing to be set free from this prison of darkness. Lord, would you do what only you can do? Would you be here in a very substantial way this morning and set each and every one of us free? from the darkness of this world. In Christ's name, amen. So let's think about David for a second, everybody. Uh, David was the forgotten shepherd boy. Remember how his whole story begins? Samuel shows up, shows up is going to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Jesse, his own father, even forgets that he exists. And he leaves David out with the sheep. And Samuel says, didn't you have another son? And just like, oh, yeah, I did have another son. He's the forgotten shepherd boy. But this boy makes it big. Fame, fortune, success. It's incredible. He has a royal wedding. He has a royal wedding. The forgotten shepherd boy is now famous throughout the entire country. He's married to the king's daughter. It's incredible. It's a storybook situation. But listen, isn't it true that when we have so much success at such a young age, particularly, that it can become very difficult, can it? And I think David experienced some difficulties 
because of his success. You know, our priorities get a little, little fuzzy when we have so much success at a young age. It's happened to Justin Bieber, hasn't it? I mean, right? Bieber fever? He's got, he's got a little bit of a cold right now uh, with the fever. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there is a petition that's at the White House over 100,000 signatures to deport Justin Bieber, right? And it requires now a presidential response. Some people over here want to deport Bieber, but uh, whatever. But, you know, so much success so young can really mess with us. It's hard to deal with. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is David didn't deserve the things that were happening to him. He didn't deserve the way that King Saul was abusing him and mistreating him, the terrible injustices that he suffered. However, I also want to suggest to you at the same time that David clearly is showing problems. Problems with his relationship with God. Problems with his priorities about God. He was clear about God's word, right? The first commandment is what in Exodus 20? Have no other gods before me. In other words, God needs to be number one, that God is the foundation, that he is the refuge, as he writes here in Psalm 142. But in that span of time between defeating Goliath and him running for his life in chapter 20, he shows signs that that's weakening, that his priorities are a little bit off. Now, the first thing we see was in uh, you know chapters 18 and 19. He gets married to the king's daughter. And the king said, hey, I want him to get married to my daughter because my daughter's going to be a snare to him. Why was she a snare? Well, she had an idol in the house, in David's house. She had an idol in David's house. David allowed an idol in his house. And it wasn't like a little itty-bitty idol that she was like hiding in a cupboard somewhere, everybody. David allowed an idol in his house that was the size of a man. I mean, this idol's like six, five, six feet tall. It's It's huge. What is David, a man after God's own heart, allowing an idol, a huge idol, in his home? Isn't that a sign that his priorities are getting a little whacked? The next thing we see here, after he runs for his life in chapter 20, in in chapter 21, he ends up in a town called Nob, N-O-B. How would you like to be from Nob? Right? So he goes to Nob, and Nob is like this holy city. It's, It's a city filled with priests, and there's a big sanctuary there. Sanctuaries are a place... Well, we pay attention to God. So a sanctuary can be anywhere. It can be right here. I had a sanctuary this past week. I was, uh, I was at uh, the auto garage or the shop having my car fixed, and I had a little sanctuary right there. I had a prayer time. A sanctuary is anywhere where we pay attention to God. And I think God is trying to say to David, you need to pay attention to me once again. But there's a problem with David. He doesn't pay attention to God. What does he do? When we first meet David, everybody, in chapter 17, all he could talk about was God. Like, everybody was concerned with Goliath. Look at this Goliath, this big figure. And David hardly ever mentions Goliath in chapter 17. What David does is he's constantly thinking and he's talking about God. And he shows up in Nob and he's talking to the priest there. And every time he opens his mouth, he lies. Every time he opens his mouth, he lies. Priest, you know, hey, what are you doing here? Well, the king sent me on a mission. It's a lie. David's like, I need some bread. He's got some bread, but you know, your, your men, you know, they, have they kept themselves pure? Oh yeah, all my men with me have kept themselves pure. He doesn't have any men with him. He's all by himself. Every time he opens his mouth, his lies. And what does his lies cause? His lies cause 85 priests to lose their life. His lies cause the entire city, men, women, children, to all get killed by the sword. He's showing some real signs of weakening. God tries to remind him while he's there at the sanctuary, when he asked for the bread, he said, we have the bread of the presence. This is special bread. This is the bread that sits on a table 
before the presence of God. It's a reminder of God's covenant with us, God's covenant, God's contract, God's covenant with us that I'll never leave you, I'll always be with you. And God's trying to remind him, look, I'll be with you. Remember me, David. Reprioritize your life, David. You're getting, you're getting off base. David doesn't get it. David says, I need a weapon. You know what the priest says? The priest says, I only have one weapon. What weapon do you think it is? It's the weapon that he killed Goliath with. It's Goliath's own sword. Isn't it interesting that the only weapon that was in the city happens to be the sword of Goliath, which David kills Goliath with? Isn't it God's reminder, hey, David, if you remember me in your life, if you'll come back to me, if you'll pay attention to me once again, if you'll start talking and thinking about me and making me priority number one in your life, instead of worrying how to figure out how to get this this situation covered yourself without all these lies that you're doing, he takes the sword, but he doesn't. He doesn't make God number one. He continues to run and run and run. Where does he run next after he leaves Nob? Now, this is fascinating, everybody. He runs to the city of Gath, G-A-T-H, Gath. What is fascinating about the city of Gath? It's the headquarters of the Philistines, the enemies of God. The enemies of God, the city of Gath. Who was from Gath? Does anybody remember some famous soldier was from Gath? Is anybody at all? Goliath was from Gath. So of all places for David to go, he goes to the headquarters of the Philistines, and he said he was looking for the king of the Philistines. And it's Goliath's hometown. You don't think David's slipping a little bit here? Now, why would he go there? Oh, there's a number of reasons, but let me give you one. So there, that culture, if you had a common enemy, even if you were enemies with somebody, obviously David was an enemy of the Philistines. They all knew who David was when he walked into town. They recognized him right away. But if you had a common enemy that was bigger, right, a, a larger enemy than what you were an enemy of, so David's an enemy of the Philistines, but they have a common enemy. The king of the Philistines has a common enemy that David has, and that's King Saul. Both of them had an enemy of King Saul. And the culture back then was you give safe harbor, safekeeping to somebody who you have a common enemy with. And therefore, he goes to Gath thinking that I'll be safe here because the king will accept me in. Well, did the king accept him in? He didn't accept him in. David's been, look at, look at the hurt and the pain the guy's been through in his life. He didn't deserve this. His father rejected him. His father forgot about him, right? And then the country's father, King Saul, he has rejected him. And now the guy who culturally should accept him in and not reject him, the king of the Philistines, even he is rejecting him. And so what does David do? David acts insane. And we might think, oh, well, not a bad move, uh, David, because they were looking to kill him. The Philistines were. Not a bad move. He's a Marine. He's adapting. He's overcoming. He's a soldier. He's a warrior. And obviously he, he, could, he could act too. He's a pretty good actor. And so he walks around the city of Gath and he's got drool coming down his beard. This has been really cool to see. So he's drooling all down his beard and he goes over to the gates of the city and starts scratching and clawing. He's acting insane. He's acting insane. Now we might think, well, that's interesting. He's acting insane, but he got out of it. So good for you, David. Way to go. But there's one thing you need to know about acting insane back then and what they felt about people who were acting insane. They felt in the city of Gath, if you acted insane, you were possessed of the devil. So the last time we talked about the city of Gath, David was running down the hillside of a ravine, shouting to the champion from Gath, you are defying the armies of the living God, and I am going to take you down. That's the last time we talked about Gath. And now he is in Gath, 
And he's not shouting about God at all. He's not saying, how dare you defy God? He is acting as if he is possessed by the devil. David's lost everything. He's lost his house. He's lost his spouse. He's lost his reputation. He's lost his fame and his fortune. He's lost his best friend. He's lost his country. And now he's lost his self-respect. Could you get any lower than this? And so he treks down to the lowest place on the face of the earth, the Dead Sea, where nothing lives. And he crawls into a very dark cave where he begins to pin the 142nd Psalm there in that cave. Listen, you'll never know that God is all you need until God is all you have. You will never know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And God is all that King David has as he is there in that very dark cave. So here's what he begins to write in the 57th Psalm and in Psalm 142. He begins to write things like this. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. I need your mercy and grace. He writes things like this. God, I exalt you. I exalt you, Lord, above all things. What's he doing as he's writing stuff like this, that I exalt you, God, I lift you up, I give you glory, right? Have mercy on me. What is he, he, what is he doing? He is once again reprioritizing his life. He's saying, God, you need to be number one. I am coming back to you to make you number one. I am fixing my... Until you are number one in my life, everything is going to be broken. But I am going to put you back in places number one so that, God, you can put my life back together because I cannot do this by myself. He says to God, God, you're my refuge. Paul just read it a second ago. God, you're my refuge. What is he saying? He's saying, you know, my refuge isn't going to be my 401k. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But God has to be above and beyond all things. Not my house, not my spouse, not my fame, not my fortune, not my reputation. What is being said here for our life to be everything that God wants our lives to be is that God has to be the priority. God has to be the refuge. And this is what David learns as everything else is taken away from him. He learns that God is all he needs and God becomes his refuge in the midst of the storm. What does that look like today? For God to be number one, for God to be everything, for God to be our refuge, for us to put God at that place above all other things. We have a pretty good example. There's an interview that was done just, just a couple weeks ago. I thought I'd show you a clip. Maybe you'll recognize the person from the video and if you're excited about him, I'll even let you cheer. So let's roll the video, see what we got here. Well, you know, I'm Russell Wilson. I was born in Richmond, Virginia. Actually, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, but I lived in Richmond my whole life, ever since like one or two. Uh, I, I got saved though when I was about 14 years old and um, that's when my life started changing. I used to be a bad kid, you know, shockingly. What, what kind of bad kid? Like, is, like long snapper bad kid or how yeah, bad? Like, like Grash. <laughs> terrible. No, I'm kidding. Okay. No, um, I, I, just used to, I just used to beat up people. I used to bite people. I used to do just bite stupid people. stuff. Yeah, I used to Man, that. sounds I used like to a D lineman. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, I think that, um, yeah, so, you know, that's kind of when my life started changing. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be where I am today without Jesus. You know, Jesus is, is my all. He's my everything. Um, I'm not perfect by any means. You know, I, I try to do the things the right way. I try to live righteous. Um, but I'm, I'm a constant, you know, work in progress. And we all are. You know, and no, nobody's perfect. And that's the amazing thing about Jesus is, uh, you know, he takes you for who you are. You know, and, and, and so, you know, for, for me, you know, it's just giving him all the glory. And the person I look up to ultimately is Jesus Christ. You know, and that's, where I, that's why I'm, I am where I am today. Any Seahawks fans in the house? Anybody pull on C? <clears throat> Russell Wilson, uh, quarterback, Seattle Seahawks. So, did you catch what he said? Did you catch what he said there? All right. I didn't know we were bringing that to church. Okay, but um, <clears throat> Jesus is my everything. Right? That's what he said. Jesus is my everything. My life is ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the one that I give glory too. This is the kind of stuff that he's saying. So that was David. That was David in chapter 17. Jesus, you're my everything. He's going up against Goliath, this great enemy, and all he could talk about is God. All he could talk about is God. And then he got off base. Things changed. Look, when, when, God's, when God's number one, what you notice in David's life is he spends a lot of time thinking about God and talking about God. And what you've noticed from chapters 18 now through here till we reach chapter 22 is that, that noise of the conversation of talking about God, that really shrinks a lot. When God's number one, it affects things in our life. I, I think it affects primarily the big three, the three C's in our life. And that is our character, how we behave, how we treat other people, our life. It affects our calendar, how we spend our time, and it affects our checkbook. Now we could say, we could say, oh no, no, God doesn't, you know, he doesn't really care about all those three C's in our life. I just want you to think for a second, right? We have Valentine's Day coming up, right? Everybody, Valentine's Day coming up. So if you have a significant other in your life, but you don't, you don't give them your, your time or you don't treat them with respect or you don't, lo and behold, you're so foolish as not to spend money on them on Valentine's Day. <clears throat> not that I've ever done that, right? But uh, is there a problem? Uh, does you, uh, are they really that valuable to you? Are they really that number one? This is extraordinarily practical. So it's very clear. If God is priority in your life, if God truly is number one, it affects the, the three C's. It affects your behavior. It affects your character, behavior. It affects your time, your calendar. And it affects your checkbook. It affects you. That's just the way it is when something's number one in your life. Now, we spend, everybody, a lot of time talking about God being number one. Why do we do that? I'll, I'll tell you why we do that. Because the Bible spends so much time talking about it. Most people, whether we know the Bible or not, we've heard about the Ten Commandments. The very first command is what? God has to be number one. That's the first command. God has to be number one. David's life story, it's all about making God number one. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up today. Here's why I'm bringing it up. God needed to become number one in David's life again, but there was a problem with God becoming number one. And I'm talking beyond the normal things you think about. Oh, yeah, it's hard for us because we have different idols in our life or things we love to do or passions. Okay, I'm, I know that. That's clear. But I'm talking about there's another problem. And the problem is this, and he addresses it in such a beautiful way in the 142nd Psalm, and this is, this is my whole message to you this morning. Yes, you need to make God the priority in your life because God will take you places that you could never get by yourself. God has a call on every one of your lives out there this morning. Every single one of you, God wants to do something special with. But you won't make it there unless he's number one. And God will never be number one if 
you don't pour out your complaints before God. David says it in verse number 2 of Psalm 142. He says, God, I pour out my complaints before you. He talks about it in Psalm 62. He says, says, all of us need to pour our hearts out before God. Now, here's the thing. David had experienced everybody a lot of pain and problems, just like you and I. A lot of injustice. A lot of hurt when he was a kid in his family. Tremendous rejection. Can you think about that? His father rejected him. His father forgot about him. His father hurt him. Have you ever been hurt by your dad? How many of us have been rejected by a family member or a father? That wounds our hearts deeply. Then the rejections by King Saul and all the injustice and all the evil things that Saul would say about David. All the maligning, all the hurt. Think about the abuse that he went through. He could not have God number one in his life until he dealt with all the stuff that was in his heart. The Bible talks about the stuff that's in our hearts. And it says to us this, this we need to guard our hearts because our hearts are the wellspring of life. And the thing is, is through life, life is hard at best, right? It's hard at best. And the reality for every single one of us in this room is we collect hurts and pains in our heart. In our heart, we collect them. And if we don't empty them out, if we don't get really real before God about how we feel, if we don't empty them out, there's going to be a problem. And what we see David doing, he says, he empties them out. Why wouldn't we empty our hearts out before God? Sometimes we just want to hang on to it. We want to hang on to the pain. I don't know, we get, it's like a baby blanket. We get comfortable with it. Sometimes we hang on to the pain because we can control it at least. Once I release it, I can't control it. I can't leverage it anymore. Sometimes I think to myself, I hang on to my pain because I can't really say how I really, really, really feel before God because that wouldn't be very Jesus-like. And I got to keep my Jesus on, right? How could I say that? Look at the, I I just wrote a couple down. They're on your outline, okay? Some things that are in the Psalms. Uh, There's more. There's plenty more, everybody. But just a couple things here that David says is Psalm 7. He says, he's saying this to God, get angry, Lord God, do something. There's a bunch of us in our hearts here this morning that you have been angry, even a little bit angry with God, and you have felt like saying, would you please do something? My question is, have you said it to God? Because if you haven't, you haven't poured your heart out to God. I haven't. God brought back to my memory this past week different times. I've been through deep times, hard times, times where I feel like I've been mistreated and wronged or whatever, injustice. And God reminded me, what'd you do with that, John? Did you bring it to me? Yeah, maybe you complained about it to a bunch of people, but that's not what I'm talking about. The question is, is did you flush it out to me? Like in all of its realness. Did you say it like it was? Because that's what we see David doing. Get angry. Lord God, do something. Check this one out. Attack my enemies. Whoa. My community group this last week, one of the guys said, ooh, that sounds pretty good. I could get into that. I mean, this part about blessing your enemies, I'm not down on that. But this sounds pretty good. 
Now I want to be clear because I'm going to say some other things that are here that David says. So when you say this, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden God's going to start attacking your enemies. Right? That's not the point. The point is, is you need to flush your heart out. You need to pour your heart out. You need to get who you really are, who you really... Everybody, do you think that God doesn't see what's really in your heart? I mean, who are we kidding? You know there's some people that you really hate. You know there's some people that have done you wrong. And you know that you're disappointed with God because He hasn't answered prayers or He allowed something to happen to you or He allowed you to be abused in your opinion or whatever. But there's some stuff up in there. The question is, are you going to let that out? David does. Psalm 3, I have a lot of enemies, Lord. Many fight against me and say, God's not going to rescue. He's kind of taunting God here, right? They're all saying, you're not going to rescue me. What are you going to do? They're talking about you, God, right? Then he says this. How do you like this? Break my enemy's jaw. Whoa. That's good. When's the last time you prayed the Bible? When's the last time that you just said what was in your heart before God? like King David did in the Scriptures, in the Holy Word of God, and you said, God, break their jaws. Now, you say, you know, I don't know if that's proper to say. Well, is it in your heart? Because your heart hasn't been flushed out. It hasn't been poured out as David does until you get it out, until you say it before God. Look what he says in Psalm 35. This is probably a psalm that he wrote when he was down in that cave after he was rejected in the city of Gath. He says, Oppose those who oppose me, Lord. Fight those who fight against me. Take your shield and armor and come and rescue me. Now check this out. Lift up your spear and your war axe against those who pursue me. Verse 6, May their path be dark and slippery. David lets lots of things out before God. There's a point in the Psalms where he says, God, how long, how long, how long do I have to wait before you answer me in prayer? I just have a question. Have you emptied yourself, emptied your heart before God about the injustices that you have gone through in your life? Oh, I've got this nice clear picture here representing our heart. There's stuff that we go through in life. Now, I want you to think, everybody. So, you know, maybe the thing that happened to you when you were a kid and it fills up your heart just kind of colors your heart. There's some goopy stuff down at the bottom there. Or maybe what about that big thing that happened in your marriage or the fact that you're not married and you prayed and prayed and prayed. Or you prayed for kids and you don't have any. Or the injustice that you went through at work or in your marriage. <coughs> Wherever it was, whenever it was in your life, there it is. Now, you want to make God number one. But you want to make God number one without letting this go. It's not going to work. Because this has to be emptied. This is what David is saying to us. This is why he says it in verse 2. This has to be emptied. I don't know about you, but for me, for some reason, for some reason in my life, I've always been reluctant to pour my heart out before God. 
whether I want to hold on to it like a baby blanket, control it, leverage it, stew about it, other people feel sorry for me because of it, whatever it is, I hang on to it. I can't say it before God because, oh my gosh, God would be upset with me if I spoke that way. Like, He doesn't know that it's already all in there. The thing is, we have to take this stuff, all that junk that we go through in life, all the things, all the abuse, all the rejection, all the hurt, all the pain, and we must get rid of it. We must take it. And as David says, pour it out. Let it go. Empty it so that God can fill our hearts once again. Now listen, listen. Here's, here's the cool thing, everybody. You know what happens to David after he does that? After he pours that out, after he reprioritizes his life and he pours all that junk out before God, you know what happens to him? We're told this. He's all alone in the cave. And remember how his family and his brothers have belittled him and rejected him? Well, you know what happens? All of his family come and join him in the cave. That's interesting. And we don't get any signs that they're beating up on him and cutting him down or insulting him anymore. But his family comes. Something else happens as the result of David pouring his heart out before God. We're told this, and this is where it gets really good. God sends him 400 men. Not just any men. God sends him 400 men that have what Scripture declares as the three Ds. They're distressed, they're in debt, and they're discontent. And I'm going to tell you what all three of those words mean in Hebrew. Distressed basically means this. He's got 400 stressed out men. That's what it means in Hebrew. 400. That's all he needs in that dark cave, right? He's got life is bad enough. God sends him 400 stressed out men. Number two, in debt. Well, it means just what you think it means. You got 400 men who can't pay their bills. So you got the cream of the crop of society, right? And finally, you got the discontent. You know what a discontented person in the Hebrew means? It means somebody who has bitterness of soul. Bitterness of soul. So God sends David 400 stressed out, non-bill paying, bitter people to come and fill this cave up with him. I don't know how big that cave is, but man, it better be big, right? And so this is what God does to encourage David after David says, God, you're number one and I'm pouring all the junk out of my life. Does that make you feel hopeful about pouring all the stuff out of your life? Like if you pour all that stuff out today, wouldn't you be so happy if 400 stressed out people showed up on your doorstep to come and bring you encouragement? Now, I want to tell you the end of the story though. You know those 400 guys? Those 400 guys became the greatest army that Israel has ever had. The greatest army that Israel has ever had. They caused David to rise to the top and they brought him the kingdom. Those 400 stressed out, bittered guys over a period of time, God shaped and transformed them. Out of the 400, there were 30 guys that are called David's mighty men. It's like SEAL Team 6, right? These are the mightiest of the mighty. You read about them in Scripture. Maybe we'll get to them at the end of this whole series. But these were incredible guys, guys of honor, guys of character, guys who put God number one. And they exalted David. And what happened is, is David reached God's calling in his life, all that God wanted to do in his life because of these 400 people that God sent him 
after he poured his heart out to God in complete honesty and total realness. This is what took place. Now, here's the thing for you. God has a call on your life. You might believe it. You might not believe it. But God has something. He's got some great thing he wants to do with you. The scriptures are full with passages and verses that uphold that, that God has a great call and plan on your life. But God's got to be number one. But God's not going to be number one if you have a bunch of stuff in your heart just like I have had a bunch of stuff in my heart. And for whatever reason, I have not poured it out before God. And today is the day I want all of us to think as we begin this series. Here is step number one at getting out of the darkness and onto the glorious things that God wants to do in your life. Pour it out. Don't hold it back. Don't make it nice. Don't make it sweet. Don't make it all Jesus-like. Say it like it is. It's exactly what God wants from you. This is why we have the Psalms to emphasize that point over and over again. Say it. Say it before God. Pour your heart out before. Pour your troubles. You think of how all Samuel begins. The first chapter of Samuel, the story of David. The whole story begins with what? Hannah. Hannah. She didn't have any kids. Her husband was married to two wives, her and she has a rival, we're told. And the rival made fun of her every day because the rival had all kinds of kids and she made fun of Hannah because Hannah didn't have any kids. Hannah's heart was just completely broken about that. And then we're told one day, 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says, Hannah prayed bitterly to God and she just prayed all the bitterness right out before God and she just poured it out before God. And God did a great thing in Hannah's life, just like God did a great thing in David's life. Would you please consider this morning pouring your heart out to God? Now, I'm going to pray. Music team's got a special song they want to play. We're all just going to stay seated. And and they're going to sing this song. And I want to ask you, encourage you, as we begin in these dark days, to take this very important first step, this very important first step, and putting God number one, but pouring your heart out to God during the song, as we sing, as we're all seated, the prayer team's going to be on the wall over there. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, they would love to pray with you. But please consider, God has a great call on your life. Don't allow that call to go unanswered because you're refusing, like I have refused so many times in my life, to pour my heart out before God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these wonderful people in this room. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful, incredible calling that you have on each person's life. I thank you, God, that you want to do great things, glorious things, awesome things in each person's heart and life. Lord, as each one of us battles this morning, as we think about the hurt and the pain, the injustice, the stuff that we've gone through in life that is still inside of our hearts, help us to get up to the place where we pour it out before you so that our hearts would be empty of all that and it would run pure once again so that, God, you might perform in our lives exactly what you want to do. Bless us this morning and help us, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.